Welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Series. This is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairment. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but for information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. So I would like to welcome Dr. Bill. Thank you, Dr. Bill. Oh, thank you very much, Karen. It's really nice to, again, be here with all of you. And uh, we also appreciate you very much for those of you who have completed the survey. One of the things that we're trying to do is to try to find out what really is the best time. Everybody has different schedules, and uh, a lot of people are able to listen to it most easily by listening to the recordings that are done. So thank you very much for completing those surveys and giving that back to Karen. Now tonight, we're going to talk about neurological vision impairment. And this is a very important topic to discuss because neurological vision impairment, it is in fact the number one cause of vision impairment among children. Now, this is a condition that does not necessarily damage the eyes. When we think about a child who has vision impairment or a child who may be legally blind, we often think that these are children who have damage to the eyes and that eye surgery or glasses could simply improve their vision to allow them to see better. But in neurological vision impairment, the problem as to why a person does not see well is because the visual centers of the brain are damaged. And there's many different reasons why these different regions of the brain can become damaged. The most common situation is that the visual centers of the brain are damaged because of the lack of oxygen. This is called hypoxia. Now, if a child is not breathing, if a child is not able to distribute oxygen properly through the blood to the brain, these different regions of the brain are impacted and at birth, these kids may actually show absolutely no signs of vision. We also see that the brain may be affected if a child has suffered from seizures. We very often see children that may have very long seizures shortly after birth, or it could be even after months after birth. And when they have these seizures, many times they are not breathing, their face may turn blue, and we know that the brain does not receive proper levels of oxygen. Another type of condition that can also affect the brain is that it is possible that there is head trauma. Sometimes children may fall and hit their head, and that type of trauma to the head will damage different regions of the brain, and it can cause hemorrhaging where there's a blood vessel that has burst and the blood that is leaking is damaging those cells within the brain. So there's many different types of ways that the brain can be impacted and it can affect the level of vision. But we also see that it could also be because of infection. There might be bacteria or viral infections that can also affect the visual centers of the brain, and less commonly, it may also be that there's a tumor that is pressing on different regions of the brain. Now, the good thing is that we find that most children who do have this type of neurological vision impairment, they are not totally blind, and what we do as eye doctors is that we can evaluate the child to determine what is the function of their vision. And we understand what is the role of the different regions of the brain. 
And by performing this type of an evaluation, we can say how much vision does a child have or how much vision do we anticipate can be developed. And for many, many, many of these kids that we see, their vision does improve with time. So when we think about neurological vision impairment, there are actually three different subcategories of vision impairment. The first one that we're going to talk about is called cortical blindness. And in cortical blindness, this is when the visual cortex of the brain, which is in the very back part of your head, the visual cortex is severely damaged to the extent that when information reaches the visual cortex, the brain does not have the ability to see it at all. In other words, children who have cortical blindness are in fact totally blind. And what we find is that with these children with cortical blindness, the prognosis of their vision improving is very, very poor. We have tried for many, many years to attempt to stimulate vision in children with cortical blindness, and unfortunately, we have not found their vision to improve. Now, when you see a child who has cortical blindness, there's some very typical types of signs and behaviors that you may see. For one thing, it may be that their eyes do not remain steady. The eyes are constantly wandering and moving. And the eyes may also move in different directions. You know, normally, if one eye looks up, both eyes look up. Or if one eye looks down, both eyes look down. But with cortical blindness, you may have one eye going up while the other eye is going down, and the other going to the left while the other is going to the right. So you may see that these children have some very interesting types of eye movements. Number two, with the child with cortical blindness, you can rapidly bring your hand close to their eyes, and what you notice is that they do not blink. Children who do have vision, if you bring your hand rapidly close to their eyes, they will have a defensive blink reflex but the kids with cortical blindness do not. Now, even though the children with cortical blindness do not generally develop more vision with time and with vision stimulation, what we find is that these children do have the ability to develop very, very well. They learn to walk. They learn to use a cane. They learn to read and write in Braille. They're able to speak, and many speak many languages. They could hear, they could understand, they could play sports, they could be involved in music. So they can have a very fulfilled life. But we also feel it's so important that we continue to provide them with the training and the treatment that they need at an early age so that their brains will become stimulated to perform all of these other types of activities. I have many patients who have the diagnosis of cortical blindness and today as adults they're working, they're married and they're doing very, very well. So what this is a way to show is that one does not necessarily have to have vision to be successful. There are many people out there who are totally blind and they are able to live a very happy and a very, very successful life. One of the stories that I want to tell you very quickly here is that I had the real pleasure of being able to meet uh, Stevie Wonder, the singer. And the way that I met him it happened to be that his son was scheduled for a vision appointment at my office. 
And this was a time after I had retired because of my failing vision. And there was a boy on the schedule, and his name was Mandela Morris. And so I didn't know who Mandela Morris was. And so we were waiting for him to come, and then the father comes to the office, and he was sort of hollering to us from the waiting room, you know, my son's going to be a little bit late. And we said, okay, that's fine. Just have a seat. We'll be right with you when he comes in. And then a few minutes later, I hear the footsteps come in, and the father comes in and puts his arm around me. So I turn around, and I, I, I said, oh, yes, hi, good to meet you. Now, remember, at this point in time, I'm not able to see who this person is because I myself was blind. And he says, you know, I understand that you are visually impaired, and you're an eye doctor? And I said, yes. I said, well, you know, I had vision, but it was something that I developed this condition uh, just a couple of years ago. And he started to say, well, hey, have you learned to read and write Braille? And I said, yes. He said, well, that's good. And he said, hey, do you have an iPhone that talks to you? And I said, oh, no, I, I don't have that. I don't think that I need it. And he started saying, well, I think it could be helpful for you. And he says, well, all right, my son's here, and I'm going to be right back. So I'll be back in about a half an hour. So anyways, we examined the boy, really, really wonderful young boy. And the father comes back, and he said, Dr. Bill, I got something for you. And his son runs up to him. He goes, hey, Daddy, you know. And I said, gosh, what did he bring? And I felt the box, and it felt like a box of donuts, you know. I said, wow, that is so nice of you. Did you bring donuts? He says, well, open it up and see how they taste. So I open it. And it was actually the iPhone. It was an iPhone with that type of speech and these special headphones. And he started showing me how to do all these things with it. Text messages. I could dictate. I could do email. All of these things. He showed me how to do all of this. And I said, you know, I can't accept this from you. Please let me pay for it. I want to pay for it. He goes, no, you don't have to pay for it. I want to buy this for you. I said, no, I can't accept it. I can't. This is just too expensive. He said, no, no, I can afford it. I said, no, 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 this is just way too expensive. He says, hey, don't you know who I am? Don't you recognize my voice? And I said, no. And then he started to hum a little bit. And I said, oh, my gosh, are you Stevie Wonder? And he said, yeah, feel my beads here in the back of my hair. So I'm feeling it, and and it was. It was Stevie Wonder. And I said, I didn't make this association, you know. Mandela Morris, he says, well, my real name is Steve Lynn Morris. And it was just so wonderful to be able to meet him and to talk to him. And since that time, we've continued to talk. But he is the person who has shown me that it doesn't necessarily matter if you have vision. And these children who don't have vision, they can learn to be very successful. They can live a very happy life, and they can be successful in many types of things. And he told me that. He emphasized that to me. And that was something that really stuck with me, and it helped me to change my thinking because at that time I was so depressed. I was so unhappy that I couldn't see the way that I used to. And I changed my thinking and it opened up so many different doors for me and it has helped me to have such a happier, happier life. So when we see families that have children with cortical blindness, we got to remind them that one can live a very, very wonderful life even if you don't have vision. Now, on the other hand, if you do have vision, hey, that's even better yet. <laughs> 
you know, to be able to have vision is a really wonderful, wonderful thing. And so the second type of neurological vision impairment is called delayed visual maturation. Delayed visual maturation. Now, a lot of people don't know about this condition very often, but this is a condition in which a child at birth, they may appear to be totally blind. You might bring your hand right in front of their eyes very quickly, and they don't blink their eyes. They don't have that reflex. You could show them toys. You can flash lights, and they just don't seem to see it. But later, you start to see that within a month, it seems as though the child is looking towards the lights from a window. Or you put the child in front of a television, and the child begins to look at the TV. And a couple months later, you begin to notice that without you doing anything, this child is now looking at black and white toys and looking at red and white patterns. And these kids, generally, within the first 12 months, they make a significant change in their vision. And this is something that is called delayed visual maturation. Now, the way that vision works is that the light rays from the environment is the most important thing for vision in a human being. In other words, if we kept all the lights off in the house, these children would not be able to see anything. But as soon as we have light, light is going to reflect off of the furniture, it's going to reflect off the colored clothing, it's going to reflect off of the toys, and those particular types of light rays They go inside the eye. The pupil of the eye is the black circle in the front of the eye that light enters through. And that wavelength of light, it then is focused through a lens inside the eye, and it then stimulates the retina. It focuses on the retina, which is the film on the inside of the eye. What the retina then does is it creates an electrical signal that is then sent down the optic nerve. And the optic nerve is a nerve that is about the size or the diameter of a pencil. And there's millions of fibers in the optic nerve. And it sends signals through the brain and it ends up on the very, very back part of your brain so that if you were to feel the back of your head with your hand and you'll feel right in the very center of the back of your head, you could feel like a bump in the middle. That bump area is the very central region of the occipital lobe of the brain. And that occipital lobe of the brain is a part of the brain that receives the electrical signals And that is where vision takes place. Now, the very center part of the back of the brain is where your central vision takes place. If you're going to look at a word in a book, or if you're looking at a face on a television screen, that face or that word is stimulating that very central region of the occipital lobe of the brain. Now, The regions to the right and to the left of the center of the occipital lobe, that is where the peripheral visual information is going to strike and stimulate. So if you're watching TV and you're looking at the face of somebody in the very center of the screen, but then you now see a car that's coming on the side of the screen, that's going to stimulate the peripheral areas of the occipital lobe of the brain. And it's very interesting the way that the vision works. It works in opposite, so that the left occipital lobe of the brain 
gives you your peripheral vision on the right side. The left occipital lobe of the brain gives you your peripheral vision on the right side. Now, the right occipital lobe of the brain, it does the opposite. It gives you your peripheral vision on the left side. So when we see, there might be some kids who have neurological vision impairment that they are only missing some of their peripheral vision. This, in fact, is a quite common type of situation. And if a person is missing half of the peripheral vision, this is called a hemianopsia. Hemi, H-E-M-I, means half. Anopsia means without vision. So one of the things that's very interesting, if you do see a child who has delayed visual maturation, it could be that during that developmental time, maybe they don't have peripheral vision on one side or the other. And what you may notice that the child who does not have peripheral vision on one side, they turn their head towards the direction that they do not have the peripheral vision. So I'll say that again. They turn their head towards the direction that they do not have peripheral vision. So let's say that you see that your child and your child doesn't have peripheral vision on the right side. What your child will probably begin to do is he will begin to turn his head towards the right. And that is the way that he could compensate for not having that type of peripheral vision. So one of the things that's also very helpful if we see the child who has neurological vision impairment and they do not have peripheral vision on one side, or maybe it's slower for them to see on one side, that we'd like to then go ahead and use visual stimulation where we use flashlights, we use light boxes, we use shiny, colorful pom-poms, we use large black and white blocks. We put people and toys and everything possible on the side that they cannot see. And by doing that, that stimulates that visual pathway. And we see this is something that does improve. I was listening to the radio today and one of the things that they're also talking about is eliminating football for young children who are younger than high school age. So they don't want kids to be playing tackle football when they're 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, because we see that so many of these kids who played football or soccer or boxing they have significant injury to the brain. And so when children can avoid that type of trauma to the brain, it is something that could protect them. But we do see that if a child is one who has played football or it's an adult who has been in a car accident and they lose half of their peripheral vision, we can perform this type of visual stimulation, and it is something that could be very, very helpful in allowing them to regain their vision. The same thing holds true if it is only the central vision that has been affected. There are cases where a child may suffer from neurological vision insult. And they cannot make eye contact with the parents. 
the parents might bring in their child. They say, you know, my kid never makes eye contact with me. Anytime he's going to look at me, he's kind of like looking off to my side. It's like, it looks like he's looking at my ears or something. And we could perform this type of testing, and we find out that the dad and the mom, they're exactly right, that their child does not have central vision. Now, when a child does not have central vision, this affects a lot of things. You know, first of all, social interaction. It's very, very hard for other kids or adults to interact with a child who doesn't have central vision because they think that that child is not paying attention to them. You know, when I first started to lose my vision, it began by affecting my central vision. And one of the things that I learned was that there were many times at home I would sit at the dinner table with my two kids and my wife, and there were times that they thought that I was daydreaming. They said, Dad, what are you thinking about? I said, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm listening to you talk. But, Dad, you're not even looking at me. You're looking at the wall. And what I realized then was that I lost my central vision. But if I turned my eyes and looked at the wall, I could then see their face with my peripheral vision. And even though doing that little trick, it allowed me to see their face, to them, it looked like I wasn't even paying attention. So I said to myself, I have to really retrain myself to look straight ahead at a person's face when they're talking to me. Otherwise, they're going to think that I'm not even paying attention to them. And I trained myself to do that, and it really made a tremendous amount of difference. And it made such a difference that a lot of times when I met people, people would say to me, hey, you you really don't have any problems with your eyes, huh? You're making perfect eye contact. And I said, no, I hear where your voice is coming from, and I've just trained my eyes to look into that direction, you know. And so that is something that's very important, that your central vision and that eye contact is, in fact, very, very important. Number two, if you do not have central vision due to neurological vision impairment, what that means, then, is that you do not have clear vision. The reason for this is that it is your central vision that gives you the clear vision that allows you to read or to see details or to identify things. You could even try that. If you have a book or a magazine in front of you, and I want you then to look at the left edge of the magazine and try to read the words, you probably will notice that you can't read those words. The words are just too small to read. And that's because your central vision is the part of the eye that has the ability to see small details. If you then move your eyes over so that your central vision looks at the words, you will then be able to read the words. So, this is why it's really important to find out if the child with neurological vision impairment has lost central vision or if it's the peripheral vision or sometimes it could be both. But again, with delayed visual maturation, this is something that really improves very, very effectively very often within the first year or the first two years. Now, the third form of neurological vision impairment is called cortical vision impairment, or sometimes it's abbreviated CVI, cortical vision impairment. So cortical vision impairment accounts for the majority of cases of neurological vision impairment. 
And the good thing about cortical vision impairment is that the children with cortical vision impairment do have vision that may start out where they are able to see that the lights are on or off or that they're able to see things that are moving in front of them. So if there's another child running back and forth in front of them, they're able to see those things that are moving. But as soon as the child stops running in front of them and just stands there, the kids with cortical vision impairment often cannot see them. But if the child starts running again, then the child with cortical vision impairment can then see. So it's very, very common that the child with cortical vision impairment, their visual system is very sensitive to movement. If there are things in the room that are moving, they have better vision and they're able to see that. But if everything in the room is not moving, they have more difficulty seeing as a result, a lot of these kids will begin to move themselves. They may like to crawl real fast. They might like to walk once they learn to walk. Once they learn to run, they run a lot. Or you'll see others that often like to move and to shake their head slowly from side to side. Or they may rock their body back and forth or side to side. It's because they are able to see moving things better. We also see that kids with cortical vision impairment, they often are able to see black and white or red and white objects the best. So in other words, if you have a lot of toys and these toys are very colorful, the child may not see them at all. But if you then buy them toys that are black and white, they could see it very, very easily. This is why many times we will show parents how to modify toys. Uh, we teach them how to make toys. One of the most effective toys that we use is a black and white drum. And we use the Quaker oat box. Well, it's actually a cylinder, huh? that the Quaker Oats comes in, and we teach them how they could place paper around it and use electrical tape and tape the tape from top to bottom and make it so that you have a whole bunch of stripes. Then you could use a different type of roller that you roll bread dough with, and you could insert that in the Quaker Oats container, and now you have a rotating drum. This is a toy that the child can see, and you could roll it across the floor, and they want to go and crawl and chase it. Or other times, they may just enjoy it if you're holding it, and you spin it from one location to another, and you'll see your child's head following it from side to side. Another good idea for toys is that you can just simply use black and white construction paper. If there are other toys that you have, or even shoe boxes, go ahead and make them colorful with black and white. If there's black and white patterns, it gives the child something to see. And let them stack the boxes, and then they can knock them over, and let them stack them up again and knock them over. It seems like such a basic toy but this is something that the child will enjoy. And this is something that helps to promote the development of the vision. When the child sees these things, there are more and more neurons that are making connections in the brain. You know, we wonder, why is it that when we do something, why is it that we get better with time? You know, what is actually happening? Is it that the cells of the brain are getting bigger? It actually is that the nerves that connect 
all the different cells in the brain, there are more and more and more and more connections the more that we do it. And this is why we're able to do things more quickly after we have performed that activity very frequently. So you could think about maybe you were learning to do multiplication facts. And at first, it's very difficult to remember these facts. But as you do it more and more, two times two is four, three times three is nine, five times five is 25. And pretty soon, you're doing it much faster, 10 times 10, 100, 12 times 12, 144. You could do these very quickly. That's because there are now many, 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 many nerve connections in the brain. And this is what happens when you encourage your child to play with these toys of high contrast. Once a child has mastered the ability to see the black and white, we then use red and white. We find that many of the kids with cortical vision impairment are stimulated by the color red and white. So we can then use red and white toys. I tell parents, dress your child in these colors, black and white, red and white. Later we could use red and yellow. And before long, we see that the child is able to see all of these different types of primary colors. When you're looking at different toys and things that you can play with your child, remember that motion really is something that's very, very important. So if it is something that's moving, that is more stimulating for the child with cortical vision impairment. Go get a soccer ball, the black and white soccer ball, and you could then roll that in the house. Roll it towards your baby and let your baby roll it back towards you. Roll it back and forth. You might go ahead and get a, a beach ball so that you're now incorporating colors. And after your child is able to play games with these larger balls, you could then use smaller. Go to the veterinarian store or the pet store, and they have these rubber balls that are about the size of a tennis ball, but they're very colorful and they have glitter on it. So what we like to do is we like to get a bright flashlight, roll the ball on the floor and shine the flashlight on it and let the child go and follow it and find it and pick it up and throw it. You can also use different types of activities on the iPad and other types of computers. If you are the owner of an iPad, you'll find that there's a lot of real basic types of games, video games, that are very, very interesting for kids to play with, but it will help them to learn to develop their eye-hand coordination. They will learn that when they touch the appropriate figure on the screen, that something happens. It makes a sound, or the picture changes, or that there's going to be another type of vibration, other reaction that makes it very, very interesting. So you could look at a lot of these other types of video games, especially those that are involving the screens, where the child is able to simply touch the screen like that. We also feel that there are different types of videos. You know, some kids really enjoy watching movies and TV shows, and there are videos that are very, very effective. We like the videos that, again, have different objects that are moving. It might be a kite that's flying, but the background is very, very empty. Or they may have other types of things like a choo-choo train that's going in a circle, and this little toy choo-choo train is going to be going in a circle and the child is able to follow it on the screen very, very easily. So there are these videos, Baby Einstein, Baby Mozart, those types of videos and DVDs 
are really very, very good. And you also can use these same types of videos, and you could find these types of videos and play them on your cell phone. So let's say that you have a iPhone, for example, and maybe that you're in the waiting room. Well, you can go ahead and stimulate your child's vision by simply turning on the iPhone and letting your child see that by holding it at a distance of 8 to 12 inches. If you have an iPad, you could bring the iPad and do the same sort of thing. You could also perform vision stimulation for kids with cortical vision impairment when you're feeding them. Right? There's many times in the day that you're feeding the child, but you can make that feeding a visual stimulation activity by actually using, if you're going to use a bottle, for example, you can actually make that bottle high contrast. You could use colored or black electrical tape and just wrap it around the bottle. And this type of high contrast and colorful stripes will be something that the child could see and then allow your child to follow it from left to right, up and down a few times before you give him or her the bottle. If your child is now eating different types of foods, use a bowl that's going to be colorful. Don't just use a white bowl, but maybe you could find a bowl that's colorful. Maybe it's bright red on the outside and it's white on the inside. And then you could go ahead and allow your child to see that, oh, food is coming now from this really colorful type of bowl. You could use a placemat. There's many placemats that are very, very colorful and high contrast. I've seen a lot of placemats that are checkerboard pattern. And this is great because then you could put the checkerboard placemat on the table and then you could put the plate right on top of it, and it's going to show your child where the food is easier. The child will be able to see the solid plate more easily. So this is another type of thing that you could do. And like we said before, when you're selecting clothes, let's go ahead and use a lot of these different types of colorful patterns, stripes, and checkerboards. Those can all be very, very effective. So all in all, what we find is that the children with cortical vision impairment, it is very common that their vision will respond very well to vision stimulation. And what we find is that it is usually, it is usually the first seven years of life that we see the vision to develop. After the age of seven, we don't find that vision changes that much after that time. Now, there are some cases that a child may have vision impairment due to hydrocephalus. And hydrocephalus is a condition in which there is water developing in the skull and this type of water that's developing in the skull, it places pressure. It's pressing on the brain and it presses on the optic nerve. And in some cases, if the amount of pressure that is on the optic nerve is too severe, it will damage the optic nerve and it will limit how much that the child is able to see. Now, we do find that for children who do have hydrocephalus, it's very often that they do have cortical vision impairment and their vision can improve. But if it has also affected the optic nerve, then the amount of improvement that we see from the optic nerve damage, it is not as good as if the child had a healthy optic nerve. 
And at this point in time, there are no treatments at this time that are readily available to transplant an optic nerve. In other words, to use an optic nerve from another child or an adult and to replace the damaged optic nerve. But again, what we find is that if you are implementing a treatment of visual stimulation early on and you have a teacher for the visually impaired or if it is an occupational therapist who is trained in vision development or better yet, if you have an optometrist who is supervising this and telling all the members of the team from the people at school along to the, with a family showing them what to do, what tools to buy, what games to use. These are all things that are very, very helpful. Now, the last thing that I want to say about neurological vision impairment is that it is also very possible that the neurological condition, that it could affect other regions of the brain too, not only just the back of the brain. Now, when we think about the brain, we could also think about the fact that in the very front near your forehead, that region of the brain is called the frontal lobe of the brain. And the frontal lobe of the brain is the part of the brain that controls our ability to move the eyes in a reading pattern. So if your child is going to be reading but always loses his or her place, it may be that the frontal lobe of the brain was affected and there are exercises that we could do to help your child to develop the ability to keep his or her place when reading. Some of the things that we do is that we get these large magnetic letters and we'll put them on a board, a magnetic board, and we'll just let the child read them from left to right. Read each one of these letters and we let them touch each letter as they go along. It sounds like a really basic and easy exercise, but it is so effective at improving these types of eye movement skills for reading. Another part of the brain that can be affected is what is called the parietal lobe of the brain. And the parietal lobes of the brain are on the top of the head and they go across each side. So there's a left parietal lobe and a right parietal lobe. And the parietal lobe of the brain is the part of the brain that controls the movement of your body parts. So if a person has suffered from injury or pressure to the parietal lobe, it may be that the child has difficulty moving his legs or moving his arms or moving his fingers or moving the toes. But it also could affect how the child is able to follow a moving object with the eyes. The parietal lobe of the brain is what allows a child to follow a moving object. So, there may be kids who have suffered from cortical vision impairment and their vision improves, but they have a hard time hitting that baseball because they can't follow it with their eyes. So this is a situation where we do exercises so that the child learns to follow things. We often will hang a wiffle ball to a string and attach a string to the ceiling and let the ball swing back and forth. And we're going to let the child tap the ball back and forth. Each time it comes back closer to him, tap it, tap it. And then we get a baseball bat and we'll let him bunt it, bunt it. And then we let him swing it, swing it. And then we start to pitch. And this is a way that we can improve 
this ability to follow a moving object. And then another region of the brain is called the temporal lobes of the brain. And this is near the temples on the side of your head. But this is something that also can affect memory. How effectively does your child remember a sequence of things? Maybe your child's having difficulty with spelling words. And it's because the temporal lobe of the brain was impacted. So we could then play a lot of fun games that are going to develop that type of visual memory. One of the games that we like to do is there's blocks that you could get. There's a store called Lakeshore, and it's an educational toy store. And there are blocks that are called Tangram blocks. There's seven blocks in the package. So you buy a set of blocks for your child and a set of blocks for you. And what you do is you begin by using a piece of cardboard so that your child can't see what you're building. And you might take three blocks and make a pattern. And then you remove the cardboard so your child could see what you made. And then you cover it up again. And then you ask your child, can you make the same thing that I did? And then you let the child go ahead and try to make that. This becomes a real fun game because then you let your child make a pattern and you got to copy it. But this is a good way to develop memory, and this could help kids with their spelling. So overall, vision stimulation is extremely important for kids who suffer from neurological vision impairment. You need a team that's going to involve the low vision optometrist, the teacher for the visually impaired, the early intervention teacher, the occupational and physical therapist, Everybody could get involved, and we can help these kids to do very well. Okay, I'm going to ask uh, if anybody has any questions to unmute your phone by pressing star six, and we got a few minutes for questions. All right, does anybody have any questions? I got two. Yes, please. <laughs> Hi. Who is that? This is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Sawyer. Hi. So one of the questions I have is that I remember um, vision people saying that my son didn't have vision in his lower qu visual quadrants. What what does that mean? Okay, <laughs> yes. Well, when a person doesn't have peripheral vision in one of the lower quadrants, what that means is that there was a region of the parietal lobe of the brain that was affected. So what it means is that most likely uh, this child could not see things maybe on the lower right with each mm -hmm. eye. So that would tell us that it is the upper left parietal lobe of the brain which was impacted that caused that type of defect. Okay. The old reverse thing. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, just like we had talked about. It's always opposite there. But even when children do have a quadrant type of defect where they can't see things, they learn to compensate by moving their eyes very, very quickly and very, very effectively, where they often do very, very well. So then, then that sounds like almost like nystagmus, which my son also has. He had what? Nystagmus? Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Yes. So nystagmus is the rapid shaking of the eyes. Mm -hmm. And some people often think that that is a compensatory behavior that they have. But then in other cases, it is something that neurologically, the nerve that keeps the eye steady was affected. So we would have to look and we could see what type of nystagmus that it is. Right, and the if it's the second one, the keeping the eye steady, that's the one that's concerning in terms of, of um, right. 
right? I mean, that there's one kind where it's very concerning, and the other one is, oh yeah, lots of people do that. <laughs> yes, if, if it's a, if it's a type that the eyes are shaking very very rapidly, that that type of nystagmus, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that type is sometimes bothersome to the person who has it because it makes it harder for them to make eye contact with people. Or mm-hmm. people may always say, why are your eyes shaking so quickly? Or are you doing drugs? Or, you know, they're often accused of being on narcotics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, cool. That helped explain a lot of things. But another uh, question I had was about um, delayed myelination of the optic nerve. That was another phrase that was brought up. Yes. You know, when we talk about the development of vision, it really is the development of all of these nerves and these different regions of the brain. Now, myelin is the covering on the nerves in the optic nerve, and for some people, that myelin covering on the nerve, it develops slower. But when the myelin finally does develop, the person's level of vision is much better, and the speed that they could see things is much better. So when that myelin is developed there, that's when we see a lot of changes. Boy, those are really good questions you have. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Bill, I, I have a question as well. Yes, please. Um, so my son is the one with hydrocephalus. Um, he often he often looks up, and that's when I feel I get a reaction from him. Yes. Um, and he, he literally, like, kind of, like, pushes his eyes up all the way and and holds them there. But he does have some type of stigmatism. Sometimes he'll, like, move his eyes rapidly as well. And he does react to, to like, black and white or light objects. Okay. Yes. When, when we do see kids that you present something and they move their eyes up, what that is doing is it allows them to use their peripheral vision that is the strongest. So in his case... Okay. When he moved his eyes up, it allows him to use his lower peripheral vision to be able to see whatever it is that you might be presenting. And then there may be times that he gets kind of excited and his eyes yes. may even shake as he's trying to look at it. Okay. So, so it does sound as though your son does have vision there. Now, you were the person yes. who had stated that your son had an optic nerve problem too. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. And very often if there's optic nerve damage, it is such that the damage of the optic nerve will allow them to see better in their extreme peripheral field. So I really believe that's why he is doing that. See, I, I didn't I didn't know this but I kept saying I kept telling his teacher, you know what, if you put his boys up here, he'll look at them, you know. Yeah. And I just wasn't sure if he was looking at them, staring at it straight up, or if he was looking at it. Yeah. I don't. I just didn't know that. So it's his, it's his lower vision that's looking at it. Yes. Yeah, so he, you might move something up into mm-hmm. his uh, field near his forehead or something, and then he might move his right. eyes way up. And- way up. Mm-hmm. Yes, and use his lower field at, in that angle that gives him the best vision. Yes. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that's a really good observation on your part. Yes. <laughs> I'm very observative. That's one thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, but, you know, it's it's really important because now you know where he could see I things do. the best, right? <laughs> yes, and I, yeah, I, I just totally didn't, I didn't know at all. Oh, that's <laughs> great. That is great. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for everybody out there, if they, if you have teachers that have any questions or anything about this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. give them give them my contact information. I'll be happy to talk to them and call them. Uh, my okay. email address. I'll give everybody my email address. It's uh, Doctor Bill D R B I L L Foundation at Gmail dot com. Dr. Bill Foundation at gmail dot com. Okay, thank you. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Does anybody else have any other questions? Hi, I have a question. Can you hear yes. me? Yes, I can hear you loud Hi. and clear. Thank you. Yes, go Good. ahead. So my name is Lori Monji, and I have a two-year-old daughter who has Fukuyama muscular dystrophy and hydrocephalus. And um, we are working with uh, Blind Children's Learning Center right now with her Global Infant STEM. Oh, I good. noticed that when you were yeah speaking before, you noticed that some kids will tend to favor, to turn to one side, and she definitely does that. Um, and I was just wondering, because sometimes the physical therapists want us to try and keep her midline, is it okay to keep her, let her keep turning like that, or is it better for her vision range for us to kind of encourage her to be straight on and then kind of show the material in a particular place? Or Yes. Well, it's the first thing that it sounds like to me is that if your daughter is turning the head to the right or to the uh-huh. left consistently, then that uh-huh. means that half of the peripheral vision is weaker and that okay. she's turning her head in that direction so she could see things easier. Okay. So I I would like to, you know, I have a bias on the vision part, part of it, but we would like to develop the vision as much as possible so we hope that they could understand why she's turning her head. Mm-hmm. So we would like for her to be permitted to turn her head. If she's not allowed to move her head then I think that there's going to be a lot of things she doesn't see, and it would be more difficult to develop her vision. Okay. So she has a wheelchair, and so she sits in that, and then she tends to turn when she's in the wheelchair. So uh-huh. we try and balance it as much as possible so that she doesn't have that those muscular issues on the one side. She has torticollis oh. as well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. By the way, are you related to Dr. Gary Monji? So I'm not related to Dr. Gary Monji, <laughs> but I am related to Gary Monji. So his, there's two. Um, Dr. Gary Monji, I'm not related to, but Gary Monji from San Fernando, I'm related to. Oh my God! And are I you think kidding? you know. Yeah. I yeah, know that's my him. dad. Yeah. Your dad is Gary Monji. Yeah. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, so, you gotta, yeah. Can you send me an email? I gotta catch up with you. I know this is fair, but your dad was my baseball coach and my basketball yeah, coach. Yeah, <laughs> he was. Oh my god! <laughs> Tell him I said hello and send me an email. I want to catch up with you later. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Great to meet you. Nice what? to meet you too. Wow. <laughs> Boy, what a small world. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody else have a question out there? Dr. Bill, this is Nancy. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Thank you. I have a question that I told some of my families I would ask you. Okay. Um, and that is... Uh, can you address the fact that many pediatric ophthalmologists seem hesitant to actually give a diagnosis of CVI? Wow, that's you know I I haven't experienced that with the ophthalmologist that I usually work with, so I'm I'm uncertain what is. What is the diagnosis that they give? Because after the appointment, they do have to make some type of diagnosis. Well, with families, oftentimes they, well, one in particular was asking, why would you want the diagnosis of CVI? We're going to, at this point, uh, look at it as uh, delayed visual maturation. So is it maybe an age thing? Um, well, you know the thing is is that uh boy i'm very I'm very cautious to give the diagnosis of delayed visual maturation until I've seen the child you know for three visits. But what I do notice is that with delayed visual maturation, 
the child's vision will develop very quickly. So let's say that we see a child at birth and at three months and at six months and nine months. By nine months, that child looks like as normal vision, but at birth, the child looks totally blind. Cortical vision impairment is something that takes longer to to improve their vision. Mm -hmm. uh, So I I really don't know why they don't want to give a diagnosis, but I'll ask some of the ophthalmologists that I know, and maybe they have a better explanation. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Nancy. Does anybody else have a question out there? This is Lisa. I have one more question, if anybody yes. else doesn't. <laughs> um, so children with Costello syndrome, which is what my son had, do appear to have uh, delayed visual maturation. It's not uncommon. And but, and but they're also clearly all very sensitive to light. So I noticed you were talking about, you know, more reflective light helps them see, but they, like, they hate the sun. <laughs> yes, they are. It'll make them cry. Yeah, there are some children with neurological vision impairment that are very sensitive to the sunlight. And so for these kids, we could fit them with uh, very comfortable sunglasses, okay? And I do recommend that you do get professional quality sunglasses rather than the toy ones just because they they have a bridge that fits better. But overall, with respect to most of the kids that do have neurological vision impairment, I would say that most of them are not overly sensitive to the sunlight, but there are some that they will not open their eyes outdoors because it's so bothersome. Yeah. Makes them cry. Yes, yes. Thank you. Okay, are there any final questions? Okay. Well, I want to thank... Thank you, Dr. uh, Bill. Yes, Karen, thank you for putting this together. And I want to thank again Dr. Joe Yerka for recording this. This will be up at the Braille Institute website probably in about one week, and it will also be up at Airs LA. That's www.airsla.org. And Nancy, you want to make any final comments? Me, Nancy? No, I always I, oh, I I'm tell sorry. families to uh, Karen. <laughs> Yes, Karen, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I just want to thank you. That was very informative. And also, um, for those of you who have received the um, survey, if you could fill that out and then send it back to me at kmnutt, N-U-T-T, at brailleinstitute.org. That would be very helpful to us um, as we plan our March through July series. Okay? okay. Thank you, everyone. Great. Thank you. Have a good Valentine's Day, everybody. We'll see you later. Yes, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>